Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Ritual purity which depends on the temple and its customs to relieve people of their burdens falls short of the cleanness demanded in the Bible. Does touching something really make you unclean? Or was the law given to show you that you are not clean and you cannot make yourself clean? At this point, Whether or not we got the point is a moot point since the temple has been destroyed. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 274 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about the special station, the special status of Jesus Christ, and how people around him should not mourn in his presence unless they don't like what he has to say. Then there was this beautiful admonition in verse 17 about the importance of preserving both the wine and the wineskins. Immediately in verse 18, after hearing this warning, we hear that while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. It's interesting because in the Gospel of Mark, she's only ailing, but here because the historical context is post-destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This character is not sick, as she appears in other Gospels, but is already dead. Something has been lost already, and it seems in verse 18 that the admonition of Jesus is already coming to fruition. The problem in the previous section was that they wanted to preserve their own way of thinking and fit Jesus's teaching into what they thought. The people who listen to Jesus have to be ready to jettison their own egos in order to preserve what Jesus is teaching, which for their minds is new. It's not entirely new, of course. He's preaching the Old Testament. He's preaching the scriptures to them. But they need to be prepared for this new teaching. You're right, Father. This is coming to fruition because now they have to see what is this Jesus going to do. This section here in 18 through 26 is referring to a passage from Haggai chapter 2, and I'm just going to read this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is verse 11 in chapter 2 of Haggai, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, if one bears holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt touches bread, pottage, or wine, or oil, or any meat, will it be holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean 
by a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it will be unclean. And then he goes on and says, so is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and that which they offer here is unclean. What you're saying, Father, seems to fit exactly with what Haggai is saying, that the people, because of their unclean teaching, their incorrect teaching, their unholy teaching, then that profanes the people. What Jesus does here, interestingly, is he goes and he puts his hand Come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus has to touch a dead body, which would make him unclean. So with Haggai, the question is, if you take something that's holy and you touch something that's unclean, which overcomes which? According to Haggai, the thing that is unclean is going to overcome the thing that is holy and defile it. But here is Jesus, and he puts this to the test. When Jesus has been teaching this teaching, what happens when he touches a dead body? Is it going to make Jesus unclean, or is what Jesus touched going to be clean or sanctified? When Jesus' teaching comes to somebody, it makes them clean, it sanctifies them, it makes them holy. Actually, this section of Matthew is ridiculing the idea of clean and unclean, because remember, in Mark, you still have a temple. In Matthew, which follows the line of Luke, Jerusalem is already destroyed. The temple is gone. So this idea that there's a place where you can go to become ritually clean is defunct. And it's into this setting that Jesus encounters this girl who is already dead, not ailing. I want to keep stressing this because what has happened here is that new wine has been put into old wineskins. And as such, there is an unsolvable problem in Jerusalem. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. This is where your observation about Haggai comes into play. But I want to add that twist to it, Richard, that without the temple in principle, the whole system of clean and unclean is upended. There is no hope for this woman. And of course, she's been suffering for 12 years which is an indication that she is a daughter of Israel, 12 representing the 12 tribes. Remember that we count the nations in multiples of 10, which is how the Romans counted. It's how we still count. But interestingly, Israel is always represented by the number 12 because of the 12 tribes. So here you have a daughter of Israel who essentially has no hope because there is no temple for her to go to at the time of the writing of this text. This is upending this notion of what clean and unclean mean with no place to become clean. It refers to the edge of the garment, which Haggai talks about as well. When you have a holy garment and you touch something, does it make that thing holy? In Haggai, it says, no, it won't make it holy. The other thing is that the two most unclean things that you can touch is a woman who is menstruating, and a dead body. Matthew here, following on the other gospel writers, sets up these two scenarios where Jesus has to confront these two objects, let's say, these two scenarios, where 
he is under threat of uncleanness. He's about to touch a dead body. As he goes to touch the dead body, he's touched by an unclean woman. Is the unclean woman going to make Jesus unclean? Or is Jesus's teaching going to make her clean? That's the battle, so to speak, that's happening behind the scenes here between cleanness and uncleanness. And it is significant, Father, that there is no temple. All there is is Jesus. If Jesus can't become clean, that's it, because there's nothing else. But if Jesus is able to make the woman clean, is able to heal the girl, then uncleanness cannot overcome him, but his teaching can overcome those things. So it does upend the notion of cleanness and uncleanness by making the word, the teaching central, and not the temple, which is the corrupt old way of thinking, the old wineskin that isn't able to handle, isn't able to hold the new teaching, the new wine that Jesus is bringing them. The premise of Matthew is that the addressees of this text did not understand what real cleanness and uncleanness were about in Scripture. Matthew will attack that forcefully later in his famous admonition against the religious leadership in Jerusalem, that to be clean pertains to, here in this section, your trust in the instruction, but that's not enough. It's your trust which leads to your obedience. And Jesus, in acting out the will of the Father in the Torah, which is to show mercy to those who are in jeopardy, to take care of the weak. He's doing what a ruler of Israel should do. He sees this ruler who's in distress and who humbles himself before the Lord's instruction and asks for help, and he goes to, you know, restore life. And he'll do the same for the woman who is, again, expressing her trust in his teaching, which will lead to the providential works of that teaching. This is how we have to understand this. And there is a link between death and uncleanness that is a correct link. There is a link between sickness and uncleanness that is correct. I want to be clear about that also, because these ailments are, for Scripture, opportunities to teach. On the one hand, when you are in a position of weakness, when you've lost someone you care about or when you're sick, it's an opportunity. It's a moment in your life when your ears might be more receptive for instruction because you're in a position of weakness. And at the same time, the way that the Lord confronts the death of a loved one is through an act of mercy. The way that he confronts this woman's illness is through an act of mercy. It is these acts of mercy that manifest scriptural cleanness. Remember, the litmus test in the Old Testament for righteousness is how we care for the needy neighbor, the widow, the orphan. That is what clean and unclean is all about in Scripture. It's attacking the matrix of human communities which create their own system of clean and unclean as a mechanism of exclusion. And here the actions of Jesus are emphatically stating no way. That is a human way of thinking. That is an old way of thinking that does not have anything to do with my Father's teaching. And if I try to give you the gospel, it's going to destroy you. 
the old wineskins are going to burst. I think the original fits what you're saying, Father, better than the way it's translated, because the translation is, I will be healed or I will be made whole. The word in Greek is sothesome, which is, I will be saved. So when Matthew uses this word, it allows us to think more broadly than simply she's going to be healed. It's that she's going to be saved and that she's going to be given life and she's going to be able to be part of the community again. We can't isolate her as someone who is suffering from something unique, but what she needs is not simply healing, it's salvation. It's the saving that Jesus' teaching brings. But Jesus turning and seeing her said, daughter, take courage, your faith slash trust has made you well. At once the woman was made well. I want to be clear, and we've said this so many times, but we have to keep repeating it because we are all pre-programmed to hear something else. She didn't do anything. She gets no credit. What Jesus is saying to her is, don't worry, you came to me for help and I'll get you out of this jam. That's what he's saying. He's not saying, I'm so proud of you, you were so wise that you asked for help. That's not what he's saying. Or by asking for help, you solved all your problems. That's not what he's saying. He is speaking as someone who responds to a plea for help. He's like, don't worry, I'll take care of it. Because you came to me, your faith, you trusted. Because you came to me, I'll make sure everything is fine. And again, <laughs> you know, it's that same verb, sozo. It appears here now a second and a third time. Your faith has saved you, and at once the woman was saved. Now, in the story, it's obviously the healing of her hemorrhage, but the metaphor of the pericope is, of course, that she, through her weakness, came to understand her dependence on the Lord for assistance, which is exactly what happened to the ruler of the synagogue in verse 18. It's a very beautiful passage, because you have, in a way, both the ruler in Jerusalem, who is condemned in the Old Testament, and the one who has suffered because of his failure, both his daughter and, of course, this daughter of Israel. Everyone now is going to be restored, made whole, made clean in the Gospel of Matthew by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not saying she was healed or she was made whole. It said, your faith has saved you. And from that moment, she was saved. Significantly, it doesn't mention saved from what. As readers, we assume it's about the hemorrhage, but the hemorrhage is not mentioned anymore. What does the trust save her from? The trust saves her because she is no longer counting on her ego and is submitting to the teaching of Jesus. Your trust has saved you. Matthew doesn't put the emphasis on Jesus the person, but on Jesus's teaching. That's where the people go wrong, is that they insist on focusing on him and they don't listen to what he says. He's been preaching all along that you trust only in his father. You trust only in what he teaches. And that's to the exclusion of trusting in human beings. It's trusting in this new to you way of thinking, this new to you teaching that has existed since Torah was first spoken. The emphasis here is on salvation, not on the physical healing. But the verb sozo, please don't contextualize it in your various theologies, because we're talking about the destruction of the temple, 
the captivity of Jerusalem. Remember, this is Matthew. You have to think back to the genealogy, and this being the new David, he is saving the city. It has nothing to do with all the theological discussions about salvation. And I hasten to add, just drawing on our discussion from last week, that while it's true that it's the teaching in which we are called to place our trust, this next twist is very difficult for American Christians who are predisposed once again to seeing everybody as being on the same level. This is incorrect. Everyone is not on the same level. You're quick to say, well, everyone sins, Father Mark. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Jesus doesn't in the story, but that's beside the point. Let's just take your statement that everyone sins and everyone is corrupt. Remains the fact that there are some people who have a more important job than you do. There are some people who have a higher station. Because at the end of the day, the only one who could save Jerusalem is the bridegroom, is the new David, the son of David, Jesus Christ. He is the heir to the throne. It may be that he's coronated by the word of his father, but in the story, he has this status. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, and I'm going to stop here in verse 23, this reminds me of 1 Corinthians. He's coming into the ruler's house. And to be clear, earlier I said ruler of the synagogue, but it's not actually clear in the Greek. It just says a ruler. But the point is that he comes into this house and there's disorder. And this reminds me very much of the table fellowship in 1 Corinthians about the drunkenness and the carousing. So the household is in disarray because the master is not sitting at the table offering the bread of the teaching. And he said, leave, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. And again, Richard, in context of the Corinthian table fellowship metaphor, when you hear that they were laughing at Jesus, it's reminiscent of the mocking and the shaming of the weak in the Roman household. So the ruler, in effect, is a patrician in this section of Matthew, and his household is in disarray, and now the Lord is coming to baptize them with the gospel of the kingdom. Right. The disarray, it's funny because in this, the death causes a kind of chaos and trouble and, I don't know, worry even maybe, um, which we have other places. But Jesus comes to bring this order. We have order and we have chaos that come together. And the reason why they are in disorder is because she's dead. And what do you do now? That's their question. But Jesus has an answer to what do you do now? You listen to his teaching and you continue to follow it. You understand that the teaching that he brings is what gives life. By bringing the teaching, he's able to calm the troubled waters. He's able to calm that which is in disarray, in chaos, because there is an order to things, the order that God imposes on it. You simply have to submit to the order that the Father imposes. Now, it doesn't make sense to them. That's why they laugh at him, <laughs> because obviously she's dead. Obviously her life is over. Obviously things are not going well. Obviously there's a lot to be worried about and be troubled about, and there's a lot of chaos going on. When Jesus just shows up and starts talking, what's their answer? Their answer is like many people in this gospel. Who are you? What do you know? 
he brings a teaching that is all the knowledge, that is all the wisdom that is needed in order to calm this troublesome situation. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. It's striking in the final analysis how simple the Lord's interaction with the girl was. He simply took her by the hand and restored her as he had restored the woman with the hemorrhage, bringing cleanness to a situation where there was no hope for ritual purity anymore. Exactly. I mean, I just love this scene so much, and I think that Haggai brings it into focus of what the matter at hand is. Even in the flow of blood, Jesus was touched involuntarily. It wasn't his fault. But here, Jesus takes her by the hand. Jesus actively reaches out to touch the thing that is unclean. After confronting this chaos that is the ruler's house, and he restores not only order, but life. Not only life, but cleanness through his teaching. The salvation that the woman with the flow of blood received by her faith and by her trust, now Jesus is able to bring this to the household of the ruler, because the ruler trusted in Jesus. That's why he brought him over to his house to restore his daughter. The ruler, the father, trusted in what Jesus taught. And this is how the daughter was brought back to life and was saved. It's the baptism of the Roman household in a Jewish context, which is the preservation and the holding together of both communities under the aegis of the gospel. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.